Open your Bibles to John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1. As we're doing that, I wanted to make a comment on the side regarding our website, that if you're uh, not making use of the website, you're missing out on some um, helpful things at parksidebible.com. And uh, you can uh, go there, you can download the app, and we have... Uh, all of our messages are located there, and even our, some of our Sunday school classes are on there. We have video now, and so you can, uh, you can watch that, not on the app, but on the website. You can watch that, but there's other information there uh, as well, so I would encourage you to make use of uh, the website and the app if you can. Uh, they are intended to be helpful to you. They're intended to be uh, instruments, tools that you can use in your own life and uh, uh, meant to be an encouragement for you. So we are in John chapter, <clears throat> excuse me, John chapter 1. And I want to read for us verses 6 through 13. John 1, 6 through 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning to worship you together. Having taken time out of our week and out of our day to be here, gathered to sing to you together, to pray together, to encourage one another, to contribute financially to what you are doing and to sit under the teaching of your word. Father, we rejoice that we have this opportunity and we pray that you would be glorified in it. Pray that you would be lifted up, that your name would be proclaimed. We pray that you would work in our hearts, even by your spirit, even this morning. Father, we commit this time to you. And we look for what you have for us. Father, we do pray that you would help us to set aside those things that would distract us from the week past or the week, week coming. Pray that for the moment we would set those things aside and focus on you. Speak to us from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, 
Thanksgiving has come and gone, which means you can now set up your Christmas lights. There's a hard deadline there, and if you go before that and you got problems. So, <clears throat> but, um, no, so, I, I like to tease about this. I don't really care all that much, but it sure is funny to make people upset at me about it. Like my jokes about the uh, movies and whatnot, but... So, uh, this past weekend, uh, we set up lights, Christmas lights at our house, and uh, we have some members of our family who are pretty intent on doing that as soon as possible and getting that set up, and so... We put them up last weekend, and of course, being Christmas lights, they needed to be addressed already this weekend because they weren't all working. And so I spent several hours yesterday adjusting, you know, replacing fuses and bulbs and et cetera, climbing on, uh, you know, ladders and fiddling around and trying to make stuff work. And, and why? Why do we do that? Why do, we, why do I mess with Christmas lights at Christmas time? And I, I don't know exactly. I know my family members like it, and so... I, I, I like to uh, make my family members happy, but also there seems to be some connection between lights, Christmas lights, and Christmas time. And I don't know exactly what that connection is, but you can see even the decorations here that uh, we have lights going. And I don't know if it's because, you know, Christmas takes place in the dead of winter and so there's a lot of darkness and maybe we like to light it up. I don't know. Or I don't know if maybe it comes from the, the nativity story of the, the star of Bethlehem and maybe we're recreating that in some way or maybe it comes from the passage we just read today but christmas is a time of lights and we like to look at lights and and uh so our passage today discusses light also but our passage today talks about the true light the true christmas light and i like to think that the uh, string of lights that i put up in front of my house or uh, here and there and are on our tree, that those are imitation, that those are representation. They're to remind me. They're like a, like a memorial to, to commemorate, to point my mind towards the true light, the true Christmas light which God sent into the world. And so I know I read uh, 6 through 13. We're only going to talk about verses 9 through 13 in our passage today. But first, I want to turn and look at the entrance of the light Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And of course, we're preaching this year from John's gospel. And uh, normally during Christmas time, you preach from the other gospels that have the uh, nativity stories and things like that. But John talks about the same stuff, but he talks about it in different language. And he talks about it in, uh, in different concepts. He's not telling the events that happened as much as he's describing the significance of those events, what they mean and what they mean for us. And so he's not talking about a baby being born and he's not talking about the family going to Bethlehem to, uh, for the census or anything like that. He's talking about the true light coming into the world. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. We, we think of the, the, the practical, physical, historical realities of a baby being born, but, but John's describing what this means and what it means for us, what Christmas light is all about. The birth of the baby Jesus and, and the, the nativity, those are, those are true and they're historical and they're real. And John wants to think about the significance of them. And so he discusses true light. He said the, the true light was coming into the world. True light. What does he mean by true light? I don't think he means true as opposed to false. 
as in there are false lights in the world, though, of course, that's true. There is, there is false light. There is uh, a variety of things that, that are called truth, that are called light, that are called enlightenment that aren't really. They're false. They're lies. And so maybe Jesus as the true light as opposed to the false light of those things. But I don't think that's really what he's talking about. I think he's talking about true, not opposed to false, but true as in ultimate, the greatest expression of it. The final, the perfect expression of light. The true light, he says, was coming into the world. He, he uses this language elsewhere when he talks about something being true. And he doesn't contrast it with being false, at least not all the time. For example, in John chapter 6, the, that great discourse there, the bread of life discourse in verse 32 of that chapter, Jesus compares manna with himself. So manna, and where did manna come from? It wasn't manufactured. It wasn't false. It wasn't fake. It wasn't, it wasn't a substitute. It, wasn't, it was from God. Manna. But in contrast to that, in 632, Jesus says of himself that he is the true bread come from heaven. Not true as opposed to false, as in God sent false bread earlier, now I'm the true bread, but true as in the ultimate expression, the, the greatest, the, the, the purest representative of what bread is supposed to mean, what, uh, what the manna only pointed to. And likewise, in 655, Jesus says of his own flesh, his own flesh is true food. In his own blood is true drink, meaning this is the greatest expression. This is the, the ultimate. Well, so when Jesus uh, is described here as the true light, what are the lesser lights? What are, what are the other lesser lights that John might have had in mind? That Jesus would be the true light is in comparison or contrast to something else. And I think part of what he's talking about here is creation. In our regular series, we're going through Romans, and all the way back months and months ago, we talked in Romans 1 about the revelation, the light that we have from creation, that creation tells us true things about God and about what God is like. Creation tells us true things about ourselves, but those things are limited in scope. They're not extensive, that the creation doesn't give us enough light, enough information for anyone to be saved by that light. But it's a light, and it's a true light, small t, but it's not the true ultimate light that Jesus is. And likewise, even the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, of course, that's revelation from God. This is a word from God himself to his people, and we read it with great benefit. But we see that even the Old Testament is not the ultimate. It's not the pinnacle of revelation. It's not the pinnacle of light. The author to the Hebrews would say in chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God truly spoke. God truly gave light. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. And so we have Jesus as the true light, the ultimate light, the pinnacle of light, the greatest expression, the greatest demonstration, 
of light. So the true light was coming into the world. And he says in verse 9, this true light gives light to everyone. Gives light to everyone. Did you think about that as I read through it the first time? What does it mean that Jesus gives light to everyone? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. It's kind of a mind bender to think about it. I mean, Jesus perfectly communicates God's law. Not just speaking it, but living it out. So if you want to know what it looks like to obey the law of God, if you want to know what it looks like to be perfectly obedient to God, you look at Jesus. He's the perfect expression. He's the revelation. You can look at him and see what it means to obey God, to obey God's law. But what about for those who haven't seen Jesus obey God's law? What, what about those who have not read about Jesus obeying God's law? In what way is Jesus giving light to them? Well, John means here that Jesus shines a light on all men. He exposes all men. It's not just an enlightenment within in that I now understand something because I have a light within and now I understand something I did not understand before. That's one thing light can do. But there's another sense in which light illuminates, light makes visible what is truly there. And so I think that's what John is talking about here, that Jesus himself didn't just come to be a, a, a light, an expression of God's will that is available to all if they will look at him, but instead that Jesus in his own life illuminates our lives and shows that Jesus, for his part, was perfectly obedient to the Father. And yet, what about the rest of us? Well, it's demonstrated, it's made clear that we are not obedient in that way to the Father. And so you see a light shining to show the darkness that is within us. And so Jesus here is called the true light, which gives light to everyone, shines light everywhere so that you look and, and compare your life and you can see. And even the person who has not looked at Jesus' life, yet in contrast to Jesus' life, he is shown to be wanting to be lacking, actually, himself to be a sinner. So not only has Jesus revealed the truth of who God is and what God's law requires, but he's also revealed what is truly in the heart of man. In John chapter 2, it says that he knows what's in the heart of man. And actually, Jesus himself reveals, by his own life, reveals to us what is in the heart of man. He reveals whether we belong to God or not. He's light in that sense. And so there's a point of application here for us before we move on in our passage at all. And that point of application is, what will you do with Jesus? John says elsewhere that whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Jesus is the perfect and final and full revelation of who God is. He's the image of the unseen God. And He shines. He shines even now. And so the question for you is, what, what will you do with Him? What will you do with this Jesus, who is the true light, who has come into this world? Thirdly, He has 
entered the world. The true light who gives light to all has entered the world. And here's the Christmas story right here. This is, this is the nativity right here, but he's talking about it in different terms. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself, came into the world, came into this world, and became one of us. He became like us. He didn't just look like us. He didn't just talk like us. He became one of us. In our connect group this week, we kind of got sidetracked into some pretty deep weeds when it came to the, the person of Jesus and what he's really like. And we talked about the Council of Chalcedon and we talked about the uh, uh, various theological things that go on there. But it's important for us to remember that Jesus was fully man. Fully man. He didn't just look like us. He didn't just, you know, talk like us or smell like us or eat like us. He became one of us. And in doing so, in becoming one of us, he did not stop being fully God. That he had his human nature, and it was a truly human nature. And he had his divine nature, and it was a truly divine nature. The two did not intermingle. The two did not mix together to form some hybrid. Because if he had formed some kind of hybrid, part God, part man, he would be, be neither God nor man. And therefore, he couldn't satisfy God's requirements and he couldn't stand in our place as a substitute. So he remained fully man and fully God at the same time and thus he could be our substitute. And this is a great miracle and I love the way John simply describes it. He was coming into the world. There is so much truth behind that. There is so much depth and meaning behind this true light which gives light to all men coming into this world as one of us. When he entered this world, he didn't leave behind his divine nature as the second person of the Trinity. But when he entered the world, he laid aside the use of certain attributes of his deity so that he could truly be one of us. And so this light came into the world. So what would you expect when, when the true light enters the world? That there would be great reception, there would be great rejoicing, and yet instead we see rejection of the light. Look at verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. First of all, he, it says he created the world. The world was made through him. The, an illustration might help us understand a little bit of what's going on here. This is not as if Jesus is a, a craftsman who built a house and then moved into the house. That would be very natural. That happens. This is like a master craftsman making a tiny snow globe and then moving into the snow globe. And even that doesn't catch the comparison. Even that doesn't explain for us or help us to, to see the truth of the magnitude of eternal God who had no need for creation, had no need to make us, had no need to make something that he could 
that he could show his love to. He existed as the Trinity. They, the members of the Trinity already loved one another perfectly. He didn't need anything. And yet he created this world. And he created you and me. Which is magnificent. Which is glorious. It's gracious. And then he entered into it as a member of that creation. As a member of this world, he took on flesh and was made one of us. The world was made through him. He said that up in, in verse 3. He said, uh, all things were made through him. And we see here in this passage the same thing. That's the consistent teaching of the New Testament, that Jesus himself is the, the agent of God's creation. He's the one doing the creating. New Testament affirms that. We see it everywhere. In Genesis, we read that God created the world by his spoken word. And the New Testament affirms that God, in fact, created the world by his only begotten word. God's word is creative. And then that word, the creator of all things, took on flesh and dwelt among us. So he created the world... And yet, the world did not know him. He went unrecognized. The world didn't know him. The world that he created didn't even know their creator when he visited, when he came on the scene. And maybe, perhaps, that might be understandable if we think about the nativity. A baby being born is pretty normal, right? That happens a lot. Though this baby being born was announced rather miraculously and gloriously. He was heralded. He was celebrated. But he was a baby being born. But as he grew and as he taught and as he ministered with his disciples, it became should have become clear who he was. But here he was, the greatest person who had ever existed and will ever exist, walking in their midst. And they missed it. They missed it. Have you ever seen someone famous? Maybe you've, maybe you've been at the airport or maybe uh, somewhere in the city or whatever and somebody walks by and you think, was that, was that so-and-so? I remember seeing a, a, a famous person, a person whose name you would know, but I don't care to repeat the name. And uh, I saw him walk by at, at the airport. And I'll bet he's, you know, he, he, of course on TV he's standing alone all the time. He looks giant. He was just this little old man walking by. But... Here, here was Jesus, the greatest person who's ever existed. And they didn't even recognize him. And even those who knew him personally didn't know who they were talking to. Think about his disciples. We, we chuckle at his disciples, though we wouldn't have done any better had we been in their spot. But we think about them as we read through the Gospels and we see they were often completely oblivious to who they were talking to. They didn't understand. They would have moments of insight. And then, of course, they would lose it. Like right away. They didn't know who they were talking to. They, they were with him continually. They ministered with him all the time. And yet they often misunderstood who he was. They, they didn't see that the Son of God was dwelling in their midst. They didn't catch it. They didn't see it. And there are passages in the Gospels that tell us that even his family didn't understand. You would think that those who grew up with him you would think that the mom who never had to discipline this one child, that she would have picked up on that. 
You would think that the, the younger brothers who, who always had their, their older brother to look at and, and follow his example because he was perfect, you'd think they would have recognized something, but they didn't. They actually stood against him. They thought he was getting ahead of himself. They thought he was overstating his case and he was making promises he couldn't keep. And so they actually wanted to put him back in his place a little bit. They didn't recognize him. The Son of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, had taken flesh and yet he went unrecognized by the very world that he himself created. His fingerprints are all over it and they didn't recognize him. He created the world and yet he went unrecognized. And further, he went unreceived. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. This is a statement that's, that should cause us to think about the history of the Old Testament. This should push us back and to think about, well, who are these people who are his own people who didn't receive him? He's not just talking here about his friends or his circle or the people from his hometown or even his family. Who are his own people? You've kind of got to think your way through the Old Testament to see who his own people were. You can go all the way back to the beginning, but let's just go back to Genesis chapter 12 and think about the promises made to Abraham. The very seed of the people of Israel. In those promises to Abraham, that he would bless him, that he would, that he would make his name great, that he would make him a great nation. And those were bold promises spoken to an old man who had no children, whose wife was old. And yet he spoke those promises. And in reality, it was Jesus who spoke those promises. It was Yahweh. Jesus had spoken those promises, given those promises, as it were, to Abraham himself. He had, he had planted that seed which would turn into the people of God. So from the very beginning, the Lord had made those promises. And then, of course, you can see that the Lord protects those people through barrenness, through opposition, through famine, through attack, through enemies, protects those people and causes those people to multiply, not greatly, until they go into Egypt. And then some 400 years passed, and, and what happens? Well, of course, they're a great people now, but they're a, an enslaved people. They're a captive people. And so the Lord redeems them. The Lord brings them out of Egypt miraculously with great signs, with, with wonders, and, and defeating Egypt in all of its glory to redeem a people for himself. To gather a people for himself who are now not just one family and now not just 70 people, but they're millions of people. And they are now a nation. He has formed them. He has brought them out, rescued them as a nation. And this is the Lord doing this. And then He gives them His law. Takes them to Sinai and gives them His law and tells them what He expects of them, how He expects them as His people to behave. What the people of God should look like. He's forming them into a nation. He's, he's given them the law to govern their nation. And then he brings them into a land. 
and he blesses them and he protects them against their enemies. This is the Lord working with his people, his own. And then he makes promises, promises regarding himself to David, that David would have one of his own to sit on the throne and his dominion would be forever. He makes those promises. This is the Lord making those promises and that promise is about himself. And so finally, after all of that, you would think the loyalty to the Lord would be great. You would think they would be ready. They would be anticipating. They would be excited about the Lord coming on the scene. But the Lord comes on the scene and they don't receive him. They don't want him. They don't want him the way he truly is. They had their expectations. They had things that they desired. They had an understanding of what they would like things to be like. But the truth comes on the scene. The true light comes on the scene. And they don't want anything to do with it. They loved the darkness rather than the light. So here the Lord has arrived on the scene as the fulfillment of all those promises and they reject Him. They didn't recognize, they didn't respond, they didn't understand, they didn't see, they didn't, they didn't believe the significance of who he really was. And so instead they turned away because he didn't turn out to be what they had hoped for. And there's a point of application here for us as well. It's Christmas time, of course, and we're celebrating Christmas and, and we don't skip Christmas right? That's, you may skip some things in your life, some, some dates, but we don't skip Christmas. If you can at all get away with it, you're going to celebrate Christmas. So do we want to celebrate Christmas, but not recognize Jesus' significance? Do we want the holiday? Do we want the promise? And I, I will confess to you that I'm, I'm just as materialistic as as the next person, that it's not just the children in my house who are super stoked about the gifts. All right? I like that stuff. I like being given things. It's a lot of fun. I love, I love the excitement of opening presents. I love the excitement of figuring out just what is that perfect thing that I would love to have that would really be great. It drives my wife nuts because it takes me forever to figure that thing out. Usually I don't figure it out, so she has to wing it and get something. Poor woman. I'm just as materialistic as, as, as the next person, maybe, maybe more so. Do we want to celebrate Christmas? Do we love that anticipation? Do we love that fun of getting gifts, of giving gifts, of finding the right thing, of getting the right thing? Do we, do we love that? Do we, do we love all the, the movies and the family time and the food and the celebration and the special feelings and the lights? and the all? Do we love all of that stuff without the heart? without Jesus himself? Would we be just fine celebrating Christmas if Jesus were removed and, and we renamed Christmas something else? I think we need to examine our own hearts in that regard. We need to have a heart that says, though we may love that other stuff, if Jesus is not a part of it, I don't want it. I don't want it without him. It's nothing. It's vanity if Jesus is not at the heart of Christmas. Here he had come on the scene to his own people and they rejected him outright. They, they loved the celebration. They loved the anticipation. 
what they wanted, what they thought they were going to get, what, what, what they had expected. And the truth showed up. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it. They wanted the celebration. They just didn't want the Jesus of the celebration. Is that, is that true of us? I hope that's not true of us. Though I, I suspect that in some way, in some small place of us, that might be true in part of us. We just love the celebration so much. Oh, yeah, and it's about Jesus, too. May we not be that way. So he comes on the scene. He's the true light who comes on the scene, enters the world, but is rejected. Unfortunately, the passage doesn't stop there. Continues on with the acceptance of the light. Praise God for verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There were those who received, even though his own people that he came to, that he had prepared for almost 2,000 years he had been preparing them. Though he came to them and they rejected him, of course, not everyone. We know that the disciples were Jews. So it wasn't that every individual Jew rejected him. They as a nation had done so. And that's John's point here in verses 12 and 13. Yes, in some, in total, the nation had rejected him. But that's not the end of the story. There were those who accepted there were those, even now there are those who accepted, but to all who did receive Him. What does it mean to receive Him? We said earlier that He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. And now to those who did receive Him, what does it mean to receive Jesus? What is, what's John talking about here? Well, first of all, he immediately parallels it with believe. Those two are very, very closely related, obviously, to those who received him, who believed in his name. And so, in, in a sense, it may be that, that those are identical terms. They're meant to be to receive Jesus means to believe in Jesus. They're very, very closely associated. But I think there, there's more to what it means to receive him. One scholar put it this way, and I, I appreciated what he said on this topic. He said, receiving him means allegiance to the Word, trusting in Him completely, acknowledging His claims and confessing Him with gratitude. You see, the word believe can be understood in various ways. But the word receive is more specific. It's possible to believe that something is true out there. I can believe some historical fact. I can believe something about the weather in Florida right now. But it has no impact on my life. It doesn't matter. I don't live in Florida. I'm not there. And so we can believe that something is true and it have no impact on us. But there is a sense in which there is a kind of believing that is a personal investment. Yes, I believe and therefore it makes these changes in my life. I don't just believe that something is true. I believe in that thing. 
And so I'm going to behave accordingly. I'm going to trust that that thing is true, or in this case, that that person is true. It's to trust in Him completely. It's allegiance to the Word. It's acknowledging His claims. It's confessing Him with gratitude. With gratitude. You see, we're so invested. We're so invested in Jesus that we, we know that my only hope is Him. And so there's a gratitude. There's a, a deep and profound gratitude for Christ and what He's done. Because I know that on my own, apart from Christ, I would lack everything. I would have no way to please God. I would have no entrance into God's presence, no entrance into God's kingdom. But because of Jesus, by Him, I have entrance. And so I'm not just believing that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm not just believing that Jesus is the Son of God or even believing that Jesus died for the sins of the world. I am believing in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, who died for my sins. And thus I have entrance. Thus I have acceptance with God. Thus, as he puts it here, I can become a child of God. So all who accepted became children of God. Now, I, many of you remember the Duncan family, the uh, Scott and Jen Duncan family who uh, have moved on and they live in southern Utah or southern uh, Arizona, I believe now. And they all, in my mind, all of those kids look just alike. You can see their parents in those kids. Parentage is important, right? And it's pretty easy. We have several generations of people in this room and you can look around and see, oh yeah, <laughs> that's obviously so-and-so's child. It's very clear. Even you can see the resemblance. That's so-and-so's grandchild. You can see that strong a resemblance. When, when you hold up my baby Brennan to, uh, to my dad, it's clear, though they're 70 years apart, that one came from the other. The parentage is important, right? And, of course, that's just resemblance. That's just talking about uh, the way we look, or perhaps it might even bleed over into the way you stand. I find that I stand like my dad. Right? I talk like my dad in some ways. Parentage is important. But if you think about other significant aspects of parentage, because of who my dad is, because of who my mom is, because of what family I come from, I have certain connections. I have certain, certain privileges. I have, I have a right to relationship with certain people that I wouldn't otherwise have. I would have to earn on my own, but I don't have to earn it because my dad has already earned it. My family has already earned it. And so parentage is important. And when we, when we talk about the Gospel of John, you can see that parentage is important all throughout John's Gospel. He spends a considerable amount of time teaching about the Father and teaching about the nature of Jesus' relationship with the Father. We were talking in John chapter 14 today, and there is profound profound teaching in there that Jesus gives about his relationship, his being unified with the Father, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. There's a, there's a unity, there's a, there's a deep unity in that relationship there. Parentage is important in John. But if you would turn in your Bibles real quick to John chapter 8, you can see another discussion of parentage that 
that is a little more sobering. John chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 38 through 44. Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So he's speaking with the Jewish religious leaders. And you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar, and the father of lies. You are of your father the devil, he says. Parentage is huge in the Gospel of John, where we came from. And of course, he's not talking about who their earthly father was. This has nothing to do with earthly family. In fact, that's exactly his point. They're trying to make the argument that, yes, it does have to do with earthly family because our earthly family came from Abraham, and so we're Abraham's children. He says, no, you're not. Because he's not talking about earthly family. He's not trying to insult their parentage, their lineage, though, did you notice that they did for him? We were not born of sexual immorality like you were, Jesus. Your parents weren't even married. Tell us about your mom, Jesus. That's the insult that they're throwing at him. And that is not what he's talking about. He's talking about what it means to be a child of God. Back in our passage in chapter 1, he says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, we, we are discussing in Romans about what it means to be in Adam Versus to be in Christ. That's chapter 5 of Romans is all about that topic. And so this is, this is fresh on our mind. And, and John here is using, using slightly different language. And the teaching of Jesus throughout is slightly different. But the point is the same. You act like your father. You, you come from your father. You have inherited certain things from your father. Not your earthly father. Not your, not your family. Not your lineage. Lineage but from the one who is your spiritual father. And here it's very clear what it takes to become a child of God. And that, in fact, it is those who receive Him, it is those who believe in His name who are children of God. And that's a powerful message. It's going to resonate the rest of the way through the Gospel of John and 
And uh, we're, we've been discussing this for about a year now in our Sunday school class that meets over here at 9 o'clock, uh, going through John. And we're all, all the way to chapter 14, so 12 months to get 14 chapters. I'll take that. But uh, what it means to become a child of God is crucial. And you see here in our passage that it's, it involves receiving Him. It involves believing in His name. The kind of belief that's the investment, that personal kind of faith. It's not a belief that Jesus did something or is something, but a belief in Jesus who did what He did for me. And He serves as He is, and it benefits me because I'm in Him. Finally, talks about what it means to be born of God, because obviously if you're going to be someone's child, you have to have been born of them, unless you're adopted. That's its own discussion, which is not a part of what he's talking about here. He's talking about birth, being a child by birth. And he says in verse 13, he describes these people who have become children of God, these people who receive, who believe. And he says in verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, this is a birth that doesn't have to do with lineage, ethnicity, where you come from. He makes it very clear when he's spelling out, not this, nor that, nor that. He's talking about something very specific. He's talking about a kind of birth that is only the birth of God. From God. God is the one who caused this birth. It didn't, it didn't happen because of your blood, because of your lineage, because of where you came from. And for these people, that would be very important to hear because they were, remember, children of Abraham. In one sense, they were certainly children of Abraham. But in another sense, they were not. This birth is not of blood. What it means to be a child of God, what it means to be a Christian, is not something that you inherit by blood. You don't become so by your lineage nor even of the will of the flesh. Meaning you can't make it happen. You certainly can't make it happen for another person. I think that's what it means there when it says, nor of the will of man. You can't make that happen for another person. This is, this is a birth that God gives. To be a child of God means to be born of God. It means to believe in Him. It means to receive Him. It means to have that personal investment, to be brought to a place where you understand, you see, and you know that He is the true light. And to know that you have to have that true light. You must respond. You must receive and believe. And so that's our application for us. We need to receive the true light from God. The baby Jesus we have in our minds when we think about Christmas was the God of the universe become flesh. And we're amazed when we think about the baby and we can be distracted when we think about the baby because He was sent to shine His light on all people. 
making clear whether they are children of God and will believe or not, whether they will reject Him. And so that's the challenge that I want to conclude today's message with is exactly that right there. Will we accept Him? Will we receive Him, believe Him? Will we reject Him? Because we prefer the darkness over the light. And my prayer for each of us is that we will again receive Him. That when we think about Christmas, that we will be challenged to think about these truths that we've talked about. That we will, we will be confronted with who Jesus is. Even Christians, we need to be confronted again with who Jesus is and what He has done. And we need to understand that Christmas is about worshiping Him for what He has done. And for what He has done for me. That's what it means to celebrate Christmas in truth. And for those who don't know Him, for those who are on the outside, who, who, who don't believe in Christ that way, the challenge is for you to see Him for who He really is, the true light who He illuminates, who shows, who, who makes known, who reveals. And the challenge is for you to respond, for you to believe in Him, for you to receive Him. My prayer is that there will be those even this morning who will be born of God and will become children of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Christmas. We love to celebrate it. We love uh, all the ways that we give gifts to each other and love on each other and spend time with family and send cards and, and express our love and, and receive love. and we, we love all of that. May it point us to You. May it point us to You that, that we would understand that You have sent Your Son as the greatest gift, the true light. And when we see the, the twinkling of our own lights or lights as we drive down the street, may we, may we not just think about this, this celebration that we get to have, but may we think about the One who is the true light. Father, I pray that you would do your work even this morning, that, that you who are Father would give birth to children even this morning amongst those who hear and haven't known you. I pray that you'd bring them to yourself. Father, may you be honored and may you be glorified in the way we celebrate Christmas this year, the way we as individuals do and as families and as a church pray that you would be glorified and that we would see the true light shining who has come into this world and that we would joyfully receive him, that we would believe in his name, that we would indeed be children of God. So, Father, we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.